Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We continue now with part two of the Christmas program, God's Ugly Child, featuring Lewis Paul Lehman. And after serving as pastor for several churches, Lehman began his Bit of Heaven radio ministry, which still continues today. If you missed part one, go to our website and click on Faith of Our Fathers to listen to past programs. Enjoy part two of this program and have a joyous Merry Christmas. On the seal of the old Baptist Missionary Union was the picture of an ox, slow, patient, gentle-eyed. On one side of the beast was an altar, on the other side a plow. Beneath the animal was the poignant slogan, ready for either. In Philippians 2.8 we read, Being found in fashion as a man, he, Jesus Christ, God's Son, humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The altar of sacrifice, the plow of service, and the ox who came through the door of the stable was a servant. He was harnessed to the plow of hard work. He pulled his part of the load, and he became obedient unto the altar of sacrifice. It really doesn't seem much of a way to describe God's son, the ox. He doesn't go with Christmas carols, it certainly doesn't fit very well with Christmas decorations, nor even with the nativity scene. The ox isn't pretty, oh, that's for sure. But neither is he even dramatic. He's a dull animal. He has neither the exuberance of a friendly pup or the pastoral prettiness of sheep. He does not possess the cunning of the cat tribe nor the gracefulness of the horse. Look at him, dumb ox. <laughs> it's not a term we attach to anyone with affection or teasing sarcasm. It's a cumbersome image, almost an insult, a, an ox. But the ox has certain characteristics or qualities which remind us of the humility, the strength, the willingness of the Lord Jesus to come and help us. There's a quiet dignity about the ox. His humility does not make him less useful and appreciated. He's as strong as the lion, probably a great deal stronger, but he does not roar about his office. As powerful as the horse or the mule, he doesn't prance or pose. A child can control him with a little tug on a line, and he, he just keeps doing his task. He never seems to rush. He's not in a hurry, but neither does he seem to give up. Yoke him with another ox, and he'll continue to pull his share of the load without sloughing off because he has a partner. He's a, he's a servant. Servant, oh, that's not a welcome word in our culture. We have ceased to even think in such terms. No one is a servant. We are, we are the technicians of various skills and arts. We must work for what we are worth. We want dignity in all that we do. We are showing that we are dignified human beings. We are not servants except, uh, well, except mothers. No one who understands values would call a mother a servant, and yet that's what she is. She is the life stream of a baby. She makes it possible for that child to even become an entity. Well, that's only the beginning. She has hazarded her life and 
However she may succeed as a career person, whatever skills she may have in finance, science, medicine, or mechanics, there is something about a mother's hand on a child's feverish head, a mother's hand snatching the pointed object from the lightning-fast dart to the mouth, the, the mother's way with blankets when you're sick, with a dollar when you have to have it, with checking on the covers at night and putting on mittens before you go sledding and worrying when you don't get home on time. Oh, there's dignity in that. But she is a servant, and there's a noble humility in Jesus. We cannot deny the lowly estate to which he stooped. He exchanged the artistry of heaven for the atrocities of earth, the beauties of heaven for the blight of sin, the caroling of angels for the cursing of men, the delights of deity for the demands of depravity, the ecstasies of eternity for the emergencies of the ephemeral, the fellowship of the Father for the forsakenness of the cross. He exchanged the glory for the gossip, the hosanna for the howling, the infinite for the infancy, the joy for the jangling, the kingship for the knavery, the loveliness for the loneliness. Jesus exchanged the mansion for the manger, the name above all names, for the name of the nobody. The omnipotent became the oppressed, the prince became the pauper, the quoted became the quenched, the robes were discarded for the rags, the sovereign came to the stable, from the throne to the trauma, from the unexcelled to the undesirable, from the virtuous to the virulent, from the worshipped to the wounded, he has stooped, he became a servant. And believe me, there is help here. It is not merely that Jesus humbled himself. The genius of the gospel is that in doing that, he lifts up those of us who trust him. We preach Christ crucified, not just as a stirring image, a touching story, divine drama, but Christ is crucified for us, for you, for me. He is available as our Savior because as an ox, without complaint or hesitation, he picked up our load of sin and carried it to Calvary. Make no mistake here, he is the only Savior. The ox has put his life on the line. On the altar of eternal justice, he paid the price for our sins. But it goes even a step further now as the burden bearer. He is incorporated into the lives of believers as the yoke fellow. There is a two-by-two two principle in Scripture. Moses apportioned the wagons and the oxen to the princes of Israel. He always gave one wagon, two oxen. Two wagons, four oxen. And Jesus sent forth his disciples two-by-two. Two. And in the work which he does now among men, he is harnessed to his fellow servants, fellow laborers with God. That's the apostolic term. And that ox... That gracious and gentle Almighty One says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. You'll find rest to your soul, for his yoke is easy. And multitudes of us can say, We found that so. His yoke is easy. Ah, uh, join up with Jesus. He's a great helper of the weak.
was a baby born into the world. I imagine if someone had looked into the stable where Mary held him in her arms, hmm, just another baby. There's a world of babies. Mary probably thought him beautiful. Joseph chuckled a little to see him laugh and coo. The shepherds knelt in wonder because they had heard the angel's announcement about him, but he was not startlingly beautiful. In fact, Isaiah said, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. But the full meaning of that description, no beauty. God's ugly child was probably not seen at the manger at the time of his birth. He was, as far as we know, a normal-looking boy. He astounded the doctors in the temple by his knowledge, but, oh, they probably wrote it off. A precocious kid knows more than is good for him, but probably no one said when he left the temple with Mary that day, what an ugly child. Hope he outgrows it or he'll be grotesque. But there is one point in the story of Jesus which is overwhelming. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 and 14. Today's English version reads, Behold my servant, his visage was so marred, more than any man. He was so disfigured that he hardly looked human. That was fulfilled when, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew nothing of sin to be sin for us, in order that in him we may become the righteousness of God. The Weymouth translation. Do you smile to hear the Christmas carols, brightest and best of the sons of the morning, and hark the herald angels sing? But consider this, so disfigured he did not even look human. It will seem inappropriate to some to consider the crucified Savior in the echoes of Christmas carols, to speak of the Lamb slain for sinners while celebrating the baby born in Bethlehem. But for centuries the sacrifices for Jewish altars had come from the barnyard, the stable, and it is not out of the line of prophecy the sacrifice for the altars of God to put away sin forever came into the world through the door of a stable. Behold the Lamb of God, a Lamb without blemish and without spot. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. An old spiritual, which is a classic in its own right, plaintively says, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Oh, you know, if at the Christmas season you enjoy the holiday, the smells of cookies and pine trees, it is wrapped in colorful foil and artificial snow. But remember for a moment why Jesus came. He, he came to die. He was the only man in the history of humanity who was born to die. He had to be born in order to die. For the only way God could taste of death was that God had to become a man. And he tasted death. He slugged it down, and his face became contorted with the agony, and there was no beauty that we should desire him. Tremble, says that old song, Trem tremble indeed, unless you were a professional executioner, callous to the sight of dead men hanging on a tree, unless you were fired with intense hatred so the truth could not penetrate your mind, you would tremble. 
Even the Roman centurion appeared to be in a state of shock when the earth quaked at the gory spectacle, when the naked corpse sopped in its own blood, hung grotesquely fastened to the nails, having cried with a loud voice that drummed like bare knuckles against the sealed-off heavens, My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah had depicted it. He said he didn't even look human. We preach Christ crucified, not just Jesus who loved me and healed the sick, or Jesus who loved me and gave me the Sermon on the Mount, not just Jesus who loved me and was born a baby, but Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. So disfigured, he didn't look human. He was made sin for us. Sin is inhuman. It's not only godless, it is inhuman, for sin is devilish. The human race was not created for sin, created for God and righteousness. And when Jesus became total sin, he never became a sinner, but he became sin, the very essence of that God-condemned rebellion, when he became sin for us. His face was so marred, he did not look human. There are stinging little words in the scriptural record. They spit in his face and buffeted him. Others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who, who is it that smote thee? Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. Pilate released him to be the sport of sadistic soldiers, the crack of the thongs, steel and cutting, slicing the flesh on his back as though preparing cold cuts for a banquet of monsters. Weird echoes in the soldier's hall. The crown of thorns pressed down on his head. Nice crown for a king! The red web of his blood hangs over his face. They beat him with a reed. The top of his head is a mass of lacerations. Are you smug? self-satisfied, contemptuous of religion. All the trappings of Christmas seem a little wearisome. After all, lots of men have been born, but, but born to die for us. In churches we may sing, Fairest Lord Jesus, but it is he who as God's ugly child bore our sins and died for us. That was not what God did to his son. It's what our sin did to him. Heaven's judgment against sin, hell's wrath against God, man's madness in his iniquity, they all meet at the Golgothian spectacle. Sin for us. No beauty there. But there is conviction. If you open your heart to it, this is what God has done to offer you pardon and peace, pardon for your sin, peace with God and yourself. There is a beautiful line in Romans chapter 8. God spared not his own son. How he must have wanted to spare him. Spare him that humiliation of Bethlehem's closed doors, the poverty of the manger, the lowliness of swaddling clothes. God in a diaper must not have sounded attractive to the infinite, but Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose and lives now because he is the Savior who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him.
T.D. Witt Talmage, one of the floweriest of all orators of past generations, recorded his own testimony. He said, over 50 years ago, my parents took me to Somerville as an infant. Mr. Van Cleek officiated and the waters of baptism were put upon me, but that did not save me. We had a family altar. My father, mother, brother, and sister were all saved and are now in glory, but that didn't save me. My brother Daniel said, DeWitt, go to college. I'll pay your way. But that did not save me. Good friends gave me books to read. Doddridge's Rise and Progress. Baxter's Call to the Unconverted. And that didn't save me. I listened to sermons from Presbyterian pulpits and Methodist camp meetings. Mighty sermons, but they didn't save me. Then Christ came, and his brow was red with carnage. He was limping. And he said, poor soul, it is high time to take your foot off my bleeding heart. Repent. And that night some were happy in heaven because Christ saved me. Oh, he is the Savior. See him, mighty to save, strong to deliver, not just because he came to Bethlehem. That was only one step on the journey but because he gave himself for us. Now, now repent and believe in the sight of God's ugly child and you will find the beautiful Savior. I was speaking at a Bible conference in a church in Kitchener, Ontario, and a small boy, with excitement in his smile and love in his heart, would tell me after every service, that was a good sermon. But as I was leaving to return to my home, he tackled me right before I went out the door. Say, uh, when you get home, he said, um, are you an ordinary person? Huh. I had to think about that for a moment. In some respects, I... Uh, I hope I'm not an ordinary person. Connotation is trite, to say the least, a little humili... <laughs> I guess that's right. An ordinary person. I have ordinary needs. I need the Savior. Ordinary failures, whatever successes I have tasted, have been ordinary too. We all look more or less ordinary. Some people can afford to wear exquisite clothes and show off the old dust to a little better advantage, and some are ingenious to develop the body to its utmost in ability with big muscles and powerful <laughs> And some emphasize the, the points of beauty, the lustrous eyes, the smiling lips, the delicate skin, but down deep we are ordinary people. Scrape off the makeup, you can age the healthy carcass, and then we're all ordinary. We get sick, we get well, we struggle, we try, we hope, we dream. Look at us. Um, well, you can tell what we are. We are, um, we are just people. We look it. But then there was one who came into the world, and we sing of him, Ferris Lord Jesus. against that hymn, there is Isaiah's classic line, when we shall see him, there is no beauty 
that we should desire him. Isaiah 53, 2. Or the New American Standard Version says his appearance is not such that we should be attracted to him. Now I want to add one more line to that portrait, the scapegoat. When Isaiah says there is no beauty that we should desire him, he keeps adding to that sketch. Each line accumulates in portrait of the one rejected by men, the afflicted by God. The prophet is also an evangelist. He keeps reminding us the suffering Messiah will do this for us, for our sins, our sorrows, our guilt, to accomplish our peace, our deliverance, our redemption. He, that baby who came into the world and whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that despised one, held contemptible in the sight of earth, scorned as a leper crying in the streets, forsaken by God and man upon a cross, that was for us. And finally he did what he had come to do. Isaiah 53, 12. He himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Rotherham, in translating that passage, has a beautiful way of putting it. For transgressors interposes. The Lord himself stands between the sinner and the judge. God the omniscient knows that all men are sinners. God the interposer takes the sinner's condemnation upon himself. And it is in that wonderful truth that the gospel offers to people everywhere, of all cultures, of every attainment, of every status and posture, to people everywhere, the offer of the abundant grace of God, which interposes the Savior who bore our sins for us. And right there is the genius of the Christian life. <laughs> the sense that you have an advocate in the courts of God. Someone has already taken the punishment for you. What a way to begin. To begin a new day, a new year, a new life. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for me. And in view of what he has done, I am free from condemnation. I am free from the law. Blessed condition. He settled it once for all. admit that why January the 1st marks a new year has always been a mystery to me. Why not make it the first day of spring? How about the day after they close school or the first day of it? Well, who am I to change the calendar? I, I just thought as a child and now again as a man, Christmas and New Year's are just too close together. person needs a chance to diet from some of the Christmas feast before he tackles the New Year's dinner, but um, so be it. But if ever there was a new year in the Old Testament dispensation for the nation of Israel, it was the Day of Atonement. See, that cleared up the past. That foretokened the future, a day of old forgiving and of new challenge. God wrote the requirements of that day, the Day of Atonement. Read it carefully in Leviticus chapter 16. And then remember that what that day symbolized, God's Son Jesus fulfilled perfectly when he came into the world. On that day, in addition to other provisions, there were two goats offered as sacrifice to God. Goats are not particularly beautiful. They have ridiculous appetites, horrible manners, unpredictable dispositions, and a far from endearing fragrance, the goat. 
Now one of the goats was offered in sacrifice, surely a picture of the Lord Jesus bearing our sins upon himself. 1 Peter 2.23, who his own self bore our sins in his body on the tree. The second goat remained alive, and he was the scapegoat. Over his head was confessed all the sins of the people. This goat, living, shows how Jesus took our sins and carried them away, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Imagine that. What a tremendous weight was placed upon Jesus. What an accumulation of animosity. What a burden of bitterness. What a completeness of condemnation. What a density of depravity. What an eternity of evil. What a fruition of failure. What greatness of greed. What a harvest of hate. What an intensity of iniquity. What a judgment of jealousy. What a kingdom of knavery. What a limitlessness of love. What a measure of malice. What a nausea of the nefarious. What an ocean of the obnoxious. What a plentitude of profligacy. What a quintessence of quarreling. What a reality of reprobation. What a sting of sin. What a totality of treachery. What ugliness of unrighteousness. What a vile of vanity. What a world of wrath and wickedness. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. But there is an extra dimension to that cross of Jesus. Battered and bruised he was, exposed on the tree to the anger of God against sin, to the contempt of those who saw no beauty in him, to the fevers of gangrene and the chill of death, but he did not merely pay for our sin. He fulfilled the second type of the scapegoat. Living, he bore away our sins forever. Now get the picture the Day of Atonement. A goat is offered to God in death. That's the sacrifice. But a living goat, a scapegoat. Oh, that must have been embarrassing. All the sins of the people are confessed over and placed on him. That live goat symbolizes how our sin is put away by Jesus. Not a pretty picture, but how powerful. Leviticus 16.8, the scapegoat is said to have one lot for Azazel or one lot for utter removal the scapegoat, mangy, repulsive, loaded with an awful cargo, provides utter removal for our sins. God's provision through him is their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews 8.12. Romans 4.25 says Christ was delivered to death for our sins, but he rose again to vouchsafe our justification. The high priest on the day of atonement lived. He walked out of the place of sacrifice, then sent the scapegoat into the wilderness with the atoned for sins pronounced over him, because the sacrifice made to God was acceptable. Jesus came forth from the womb of Mary to become our sin-bearer, but being such, he came forth from the tomb to signify the sacrifice was acceptable, and those sins cannot be charged against us again. The scapegoat was sent into the wilderness to meet Azazel. That's a name for Satan. He was not to be a sacrifice for Satan, but to deal with the enemy. Satan is our enemy. He often confounds the child of God by insinuating, maybe your sins have not been forgiven. Maybe you failed too much. He's the accuser of the brethren. Now, 
that is you, that is I, we are Christ's brethren. But listen, the infant speaks from Bethlehem, I have come to do the will of God, I'm the Lord's choice. I know why I'm here, before Abraham was, I am. I'll be a sacrifice for sin, I will be a Zazel's conqueror. Tear down this temple of my body, in three days I'll raise it up. Dying beside a thief, I'll snatch him as a brand from the burning. He will be my rejoicing companion in paradise, I will rise again, I will ever live to make intercession. You are the broken life, broken mind, broken dreams, broken hopes, broken spirit. Listen to me, says Jesus, I've died for you, and I'll overcome for you. Jesus said, I'll be your champion. Confess your sin over me. I will tell the enemy it's all paid for. The sinner is now acceptable to God. His sin has been canceled. Ho, ho, Azazel! Do you send to the manger to slay me? Do you provoke Herod to find me? Do you stir up a storm to swamp my boat? Do you enlist a crowd to push me over a cliff? Do you heckle me with a legion of demons? Ah, Azazel, I'll triumph over you. See, that's the scapegoat. Jesus, the living one, goes forth to tell our accuser he has no claim on us. No bargain is made with Satan, no compromise. The redeemed child of God is delivered from the power of Satan, for Christ has conquered, he has taken our sins away. And Isaiah 53 describes him, God's ugly child. For one thing, he's the scapegoat. But Isaiah 53:11 says, By knowledge of him shall my righteous servant make many righteous or justified by knowing him. The question is, do you know Jesus? The old man who came into my office, sad, downhearted, depressed, feeling so guilty. Can God forgive an old man like me? Yes. He told me that 40 years ago he trusted Christ, but he never felt free. He was so burdened. He had tried to please God and serve God, but was he really saved? I asked a few questions. You believe Jesus died for you and rose again? Do you confess him as your Lord? Yes, yes. Well, then either God has forgiven you or he's a liar. Are you trying to make God a liar? The old boy shook with that idea. Why, no, no, no. Well, if you believe Jesus died, Jesus rose, and you've confessed him as Lord, he has an obligation to save you, to forgive you, because that's what he said he would do. Don't let the enemy. Azazel from the wilderness has no right to put guilt on you. Jesus carried away our sins forever, remembered against us no more. Where did he put your sins? He's forgotten, remembered no more. What a new life. Hallelujah. Light rubbing its bewitching finger on a sea of ornaments. Customers turning over price tags looking for markdowns. Package corners punching their blades through the fragile paper in a satire of finery and being healed with sticky seals. The dry sameness of plastic toys. The slick chill of glass bottles marching through a jungle of keys you punch, strings you pull, and long forked tails you plug in. Weariness and tired feet, desperation at sold-out accommodations, hope staring through the filigree of fear, anxiety and anticipation tugging at time, the cobbles of the street unbending to fatigue, the dirt floor of the barn, the wood of the manger as crude as the wood of a cross, the pain, the joy, the coarse necessity of swaddling claws, the brittle straw, the warm softness of a baby,
the firm fullness of a mother's breast, the sigh of sleep, gladness brighter than morning, for the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings, touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You've been listening to Lewis Paul Lehman. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.